Well, welcome once again. It's great to see all of you here this morning. Like Phil mentioned, we've been studying these books of the Bible that raise up big questions. So the big question we'll start with today is this. What could have been done to prevent this? What could have been done to prevent this disaster, this thing that happened, this, this thing we can't control? And I'm not referring to your calling me as your pastor. What could be done could have been done to present this. This is something that people have wrestled with like forever, right? Like ever since there was people, there have been things that have gone wrong. And so the question always comes up, what could we have done to do something differently? If you remember uh, the 2008-2009 financial crisis, uh, one of my favorite books is actually about that time in our history. It's called Too Big to Fail. Any of you read Too Big to Fail? Andrew Ross Sorkin wrote it. He's the uh, financial reporter for the Wall Street Journal. It's a great book. Because it goes really deep into not just the details of what happened during the crisis, but the people that were involved. Like, who was sort of manning the store when this went down? And so three of the big characters from that story, these are names you may remember. Hank Paulson, who was the Secretary of the Treasury at the time. Timothy Geithner, who was the President of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And then Ben Bernanke, who was the Chair of the Fed. These are the three kind of big characters in Too Big to Fail. And so these are the guys that when the economy started to fall apart, they rushed to the scene, they were doing everything they possibly could to try to right the ship, they were figuring things out and trying to get legislation through and all this kind of stuff. And the interesting thing about each of their level of involvement in this whole moment when the American economy was literally teetering on the verge of collapse is that I don't think any of them could have seen it coming. And here's why. Every one of them was too close to the action. Every one of them had long histories in finance, long histories in sort of the economic life and vitality. They all had backgrounds in in the city, in New York City, actually. And so even though there's plenty of still sort of post-mortem around what happened and why did it happen, I'm making the case, I think, this morning that those three guys probably couldn't have done a whole lot to stop what happened because they were just too close to it. They could not see it. They could not get objectivity from the disaster. What could have been done to prevent this disaster? I don't know that those guys could have done anything. Now, the moral merits of that claim we can debate another time. And there was someone who actually did kind of see it coming. We'll talk about that person at the very end. But that question is what I want us to focus on. What could have been done to prevent this disaster? So today we're continuing in our sermon series, like Phil mentioned, on short books of the Bible. And he's also right. Amos isn't exactly a short book, nine chapters. But it puts up for grabs like several really big questions that we're going to talk about, the top of the heap of which is, what could have been done to prevent this disaster? Now, there's an outline in your bulletin. So as you came in, you should have been handed a bulletin. If you weren't, wave your arms frantically. Someone will bring you a bulletin. But we have three different headings that we're going to try to approach this subject today. We're going to set the context for Amos, because if you're like me, you didn't read Amos recently. Like, I had to read it recently, but I bet most of us haven't. So let's kind of set the table for what we're talking about. Then we'll talk about how things went off the rails. What happened? Like, if the presenting event in Amos is that there was a crisis in the nation of Israel, how did they get there? And then we'll talk about the two big lessons that Amos tries to bring before the people of God. Two big lessons that he's going to teach us. And then we'll end with some practical insights. So let's start with the context. Who's Amos? What are the circumstances of his life? What did he come to say? What's he about? During the time, this time in the history of Israel, the nation was split into two kingdoms. There was Judah in the south and Israel in the north. I didn't know that till I went to seminary, so don't feel bad if you didn't know that. 
We know that Amos was from the southern kingdom and that his profession was actually pretty low profile. He was not a high wage earner. He was not involved in high finance. He worked in agriculture. He was a shepherd. According to chapter 7, verse 14, he dressed sycamore trees, which apparently would have been a very low-paying profession. And so he wasn't some guy that was sort of plucked off the top of the social ladder. He was just a guy. He was just a worker. And this matters because God called Amos to leave his very meager means, very meager existence, and go north. He went to Israel, to the northern kingdom, and he did, he did, he did that so that he could do what Old Testament prophets do. Go tell people news they don't want to hear. Tell them stuff that they're not going to be excited to hear about. In Amos' case, he went to Israel to talk with the king at that time, who's a guy named Jeroboam II. Under Jeroboam's rule, the kingdom had become an aristocracy. The only people in power were rich people. And there was a high level of corruption among these folks that were in power. They ruled over everybody else, so if you weren't rich, you were in service to the rich. And these leaders would actually exploit the poor. That's one of the chief indictments you hear over and over again in the book of Amos, is that these guys were taking advantage of poor people. And by that we mean they were taking away the land that had been given to the poor, they were selling the land, making money off of that, and then, to make matters worse, they would sell the poor people that they'd just taken the land from into slavery. So this is a really bad downward spiral. This is a very bleak situation, and not at all what God intended for his people to live like. To make matters worse, there's the economic breakdown, there's sort of the land ownership breakdown, there's all the social mistrust. To make matters even worse, the people of God weren't lining up with where God wanted them to be spiritually. They were not doing what God wanted them to do in terms of how they worshipped, what their hearts desired. When the people of Israel first came into the promised land, what did they discover? They discovered, oh my gosh, it's exactly like God promised. It's wonderful, it's great. Oh, there's people living here. <laughs> what? We have to move in where there are people who are already living, and those people were called the Canaanites. When the people of Israel moved in, the Canaanites didn't just disappear. They kind of became part of the Israelites' larger culture. Well, the problem with this is that in Israel, in the north, under the rule of Jeroboam II, the religion of the Canaanites became the primary religion of the people of Israel. So the people who were supposed to be worshiping God, setting an example of how they live their lives before God, were instead taking part in some pretty sick stuff. And by that, I mean religion that revolved around things like ritual prostitution, exploitation of women, drunkenness, that that was part of how you participate in this religion as you got drunk. There was violence against people. There were orgies. There were all kinds of things going on that were far, far, far removed from what God desired. It's a pretty dark time in the history of the people of Israel. And so who do you think God drags into this mess? A master hostage negotiator. Someone that knows exactly how to broker a deal. Someone that has incredible wealth and resources and capital and can settle the whole thing down. Nope. He brings in a guy who, by his own admission, in front of the king, says, I have absolutely no, no pedigree or degree that says I should be here right now. There is no qualification behind Amos other than the call of God. And guess what? He is perfectly suited for the job. He is absolutely the man for the moment. And this follows in a trend of things that we've seen happen all throughout Scripture. Think about it for a second. When God wanted to lead his people through a king, they demanded a king. God said, no, you don't need a king. I'm your king. The people said, yes, we need a king. He said, fine, you get a king. Who did he pick? He picked the kid that wasn't even on the selection committee's radar, King David. That was who was elevated to be the king over the people of Israel. 
Not the tallest, not the strongest, not the smartest, but the guy that was needed in that moment. Who did God choose to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? A diplomat? Someone with great foreign credentials? No, he picked Moses. He picked a murderer. He picked a criminal. He picked an orphan. And when God sent us our Redeemer, when God sent the answer to all of life's big questions, did he send him as a conquering king or riding on a horse with a big old sword in his hand? He sent him as a baby. He sent him as helpless as any of us when we first come into the world. He learned carpentry, and he lived most of his life as a homeless person. So here's a really important question to ask in light of all that I just said about context. If you are like me and you can profess and enjoy the wonderful freedom of being able to say, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing as a parent. I have no idea what I'm doing in my job. If you can engage that freedom, then you're right in line, I think, with what God has desired from his people throughout the centuries. You do not have to have special qualifications to do what God has made you to do. And are you still willing, are we still willing to step into God's story absent preparation? Like, we love to be prepared, right? Like, we love to know where'd you go to college and what'd you study and how many years have you been in this job? We live in such a highly professionalized time, and yet there is no professional requirement for entering into service into God's kingdom. There's just the call of Jesus Christ and his faithfulness expressed through his people. This is a good word to hear if you have tried doing something for God, if you've tried to build his kingdom, if you tried to get something going and it just didn't work, that's all right. Join the club. There are a lot of people who've tried to do great things for God and it didn't take off the first time or the second or the third or the fourth. But because of the faithfulness of God, things work out like God intends. Amos' story should be an encouragement to all of us who've tried to lead and have failed or who are in leadership and going, I don't know what I'm doing. I really have no idea what I'm doing. I hope God's using this. Yes, he is. When he's in the middle of it, he is. And so what is our appetite for stepping into the story of God, for stepping into things that we cannot see, that we cannot plan for, we cannot budget for, but that he is calling us to? What's our appetite, our aptitude for that? So we've learned Amos Formally unprepared for service to God, which is true for all of us, we've learned that God sets us up for success no matter what we're facing, how daunting or complex the challenge may be. There's no Rubik's Cube that God cannot make right. And when we worship other gods, as the people of Israel did, when we take ourselves too seriously, when we put anything else in first place before God, it breaks God's heart. And so now we need to tackle another question. How do you know when you're off the map? How do you know when you have stepped into something and you should not have done that? How do you know when you're missing the mark? Let's go back to Amos' story. He brings a message to the people of God that they don't want to hear, but the way he does it is so masterful. Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Amos are Amos' painting of this picture, kind of using a map to say, well, this group of people over here does this, and God isn't a fan of that. This group of people over here does this, and that really breaks God's heart. And he lists off all these different things. And if you could draw it on a map, it's like a concentric circle getting tighter and tighter around Israel. That's chapters 1 and 2. And then chapters 3, 4, and 5 are when he brings down the hammer. And so it's so intriguing to me, right? Like this, this rhetoric and this argument that he's using. He's basically taking people that Israel wouldn't have liked, like their enemies, and saying like, they're terrible people. Don't you hate it when they do this? They're awful. Don't you hate it when your neighbor's dog barks all night long? And then God says, you're worse. Your sinfulness, your brokenness, the fact that you know better, you're doing stuff that I've told you not to do, 
you're worse. What a convicting thing and what a painful thing. That's why the tone of the scripture that we had read for us is really hard to hear. Like we should all hear this scripture, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, and go, ugh, that sounds like me on a really bad day. Like what is going on there? What's going on is that God has painted a picture for the people to say, you have missed it. You have totally missed it. And you think your enemies are bad. You're worse. Now, believe me when I tell you, and I'll try to prove this, that there's actually an invitation in that. It's not just slam, here comes the judgment from God. He bangs the gavel on it and we're all finished. Believe me when I tell you there's an invitation to more through that. And it comes through the most unlikely of places, and that is through our experience of suffering. All through chapters 3, 4, and 5, especially in chapter 4, God warns his people not to worship other gods. The people ignore God, and so God says, okay, you're not going to come back to me. He says, you did not return to me. Even when really bad things happen to the people, which God can use really bad things to remind us, like, hey, I'm in charge. Hey, are you listening? Hey, pay attention. Things that the Israelites should have known could be the activity of God. Things like plagues and famines and droughts. Remember your Old Testament history? When else did plagues and famines and droughts happen? When the people were trying to leave Egypt. And they happen to the people now, and the people go, huh, that's a plague. That's interesting. I wonder what we should do something about that. I wonder what's going on. God is saying to them, listen, you're not paying attention. You are not coming back to me. You're still worshiping in the Canaanite ways of life. That is not what I intended for you. And it's breaking God's heart. And so the suffering is the vehicle through which the lesson is coming. Now let me pause and be very, very, very clear. Not every time we suffer is there a lesson. God is not always behind our suffering. He is not always behind plagues and famines and droughts and all these terrible things. He can be because he's God and because he knows what's best for us and he can bring about our flourishing through the most unlikely of sources. Here's the question that I think needs to be asked. This is kind of one of our big questions for this series. In the midst of suffering, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have every right to ask this of Jesus. Jesus, this is really hard. Whatever it is that I'm going through, my business is struggling. My kids are just going nuts. Is there something you want me to be learning from this? Is there something you want me to be learning? And sometimes the answer is no or nothing or there is no answer. We have to be okay with that. I know that's really hard, but I think that's where the invitation is. Because if I'm asking God, what are you teaching me through this suffering? Like, I'm struggling with this, or like, I don't feel great in this corner of my life. I'm a terrible parent right now. Fine, what are you trying to teach me through this? That's the invitation I can offer back to God and say, would you please speak into my life? Can I step into a place of humility and say, I I still have a lot I need to learn, and maybe this suffering is the way that God wants me to learn. It isn't always going to be that way. But God can use your pain and my pain to teach us stuff that we would never, ever wake up to any other way. I've told you guys before that I failed a class when I was in seminary. That was pretty painful. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't failed that class because it delayed my graduation a year, and then I took a different call, and then God called us here. Wouldn't be here if I hadn't failed a class. Isn't that remarkable? I went through a deep, dark season of loneliness and discouragement in my early 20s. Guess when I met my wife? Guess when I found some of the best friends I've ever had in my life? Right after that season ended, right as it was coming to a close. God was preparing me through suffering to see how he wanted me to live in community with other people. 
There are countless other stories like this from your life and my life. And the key is, what question are we asking of our suffering? And if you're in a place where you're absent a time of suffering, like file this away for later. Like put this in your red box that you break an emergency and pull it out, right? What is going on? What is God trying to teach me in the midst of my suffering right now? This is what God is saying to the Israelites. And you can hear this in verses 21 through 23. As hard as it is to hear, I reject your sacrifices. I don't care for your worship. This stuff is really tough. God is saying to his people, you're off the map, but you can come back. You can come back. It's an invitation to come back. So here's a big practical question. How do you know when you're off the map? How do you know when something's taking you wayward? Are you familiar with the term vectoring? It's a term that a friend of mine uh, made up, but I think it's probably more common than not. It's when you're on a course and you deviate just a degree to the left or a degree to the right. Very, very quickly, you are so far off your target, it's hard to get back. We all do this. We all vector. We all take just a little turn here and a little turn there. And we are very much like the Israelites. We get distracted. We get caught up in the wider culture. We stray from our foundations. We use our self-designed values as our best guide instead of the values that God gives to us in his scriptures. And we get lost. It happens to all of us. But how do we know when we're off the map? How do we know when we're not on the path that God has for us? At the top of the list for me is the kind of relationships that I'm in, the quality of relationship that I'm in with my wife, with my children, with this tight group of friends that I have, with my small group. Those are the people that are going to say to me, like, this doesn't feel like you. Do you have people like that, that you can rely upon? I think it's actually kind of a cool thing that in our world, you can be driving somewhere, you can get on your phone, and you can call someone who has some objectivity from your life. You can kind of reach out to someone that doesn't live near you, that isn't sort of in your world, and say, hey, this is what's going on. How does this sound to you? And because of that distance, that can actually bring some objectivity to their consideration of what's happening to you. And they can help you answer that question. What, what does God want to be teaching me right now? Is there a lesson for me to learn through this suffering? I encourage you to lean into those relationships in the week ahead. Okay, now let's land the plane on the two primary lessons that Amos finishes up with for the people of Israel. I'm going to read uh, Amos 5, the text that Phil read for us, but I'm just going to read verse 23 and 24. So he's got the big indictments against the people of God at the beginning. Verse 23, Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. So painful, so difficult for the people to hear. But... Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now that we know a little bit about the context, about who Amos was speaking to, what he was trying to say to them, it makes a little bit more sense, I think, to hear some of those accusations in that context. And then we can look at verse 24 and say, here's, here's part of the solution. Here's what God wants his people to move toward. There are two words in verse 24 that are absolutely critical for the people who follow God to say, okay, this is how I'm going to move into a new stage in my life. And they're not easy words. They're not effortless, but they are things that we are called to be about, and that is justice and righteousness. So we're going to look closely at both for just a moment. First, let's talk about justice. Many of you have a very high degree of familiarity with the biblical call to justice. We talk about it often here at Bethany. Many of us aren't as familiar with it, so we're going to do a really quick review of what it means when it's said in the scriptures. The Hebrew word for justice that's used in our passage today is actually used over 400 times in the Old Testament. 
It's mishpat. It's a very, very important word to the people of God. They would have heard it and they would have stand on tiptoe to hear what the rest was going to be said. Now, let me paint a picture for what justice is not first. Look, if you would like to do this on your own, Amos chapter 4 and 5 give a whole bunch of examples of what justice is not. In Amos 4, the people of God, according to God, are oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. That's kind of what we talked about earlier. Then 5.12 goes even further, kind of sticks the knife in a little bit deeper by calling out those who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who push away the needy in the public square. When do people do flagrantly wrong things? When they feel like they're not going to get caught. When do you swerve onto the HOV lane on 405 when you don't see a state trooper behind you? Or ever, hopefully. Those double white lines, man, I can't cross those. Like, can't do it. That's what absent, a world absent justice looks like. It looks like exploitation. It looks like afflicting those who are trying to pursue the things of God, doing it all in light for everybody to see. The people are not doing the biblical definition of justice, which we've used before from this theologian named Nicholas Volterstorff. He says it this way, biblical justice is treating other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. Treating other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about justice. So, the wealthy ruling class, the aristocrats, the fat cats that were sitting over the people of Israel, they were committing injustice by exploiting the poor. When we, in our day, just go along to get along, when we play by the rules of corrupt systems, when we ignore those who are in need right in front of us, when we drag down people who are trying to pursue God because they make us uncomfortable, we are breaking God's heart. And we are complicit in injustice. We miss, the, uh, we miss the opportunity to treat other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated, which is always with dignity and respect and compassion. And so what do we do about it? Let's share an example from another prophet, the prophet Ezekiel. Like Amos, he was called to be God's messenger, right, which is to tell people things they don't want to hear. In chapter 45 of Ezekiel's prophecy, God calls out the leaders of Israel for some really unjust practices. Let me share this very brief quote with you. This is Ezekiel 45, 9. Thus says the Lord God, enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression and do what is just and right. Cease your evictions of my people, says the Lord God. What's really interesting is after Ezekiel tells the people of Israel that, he gives them a couple of different examples that are a little bit surprising, like not what we would expect. The first example he gives them, this is how you can live into God's call to be a just people, is to do business well. If you're in the business world, you need to read Ezekiel chapter 45. Ezekiel tells the leaders of Israel, stop playing by the rules of the commercial districts around you. Do things fairly and rightly. Get your measurements right. Think about it. In this time, they would not have had four or five decimal places when they were measuring out valuable things. They would have just had very simple tools for measurement. How easy is it to exploit a simple tool? Super easy. But the people of God are not supposed to be a part of that. So God tells the leaders of Israel, start doing business my way. Start doing business. Start running your businesses in a way that brings glory to me and start with doing it Start with doing this through fair measurements. Be fair to your customers. Be fair to the people that you serve. How many of us know companies that are just exemplary? And one of the reasons they're exemplary is because they treat people fairly. We know way too many companies that don't treat people fairly, but those that do are doing something that is close to the heart of God. 
The next thing that Ezekiel tells the people of God to do makes a lot of sense for the people of God. He tells them to worship together. And this is uh, <laughs> a little bit of a soapbox, but this is why we can't just do live stream. Like as wonderful of a tool as live stream is, watching a service online, tuning in, as helpful as that is, especially as parents, when your kids get sick or when you're not feeling it or you don't want to come to church, or if you're elderly, it's too hard to get there. That's why live stream is not a substitute for this. The people of God are told by God, get together every week. Be together in such a way that you can encourage each other, that you can remind each other of my goodness. That's what happens when we rub elbows with each other, when we bump into each other at church. When we say, I want to be here, and I want to see so-and-so, and I want to ask them, how's this going? Ask a kid, how was your test last week? However God calls us to be in community together, we can't do that absent this time. So, thank you for being here. Good job. You're doing it. And it's okay if you want to watch the live stream sometimes. I love that we have that so we can serve people that aren't here. But that should not become a substitute for this time. How do we follow Ezekiel's lead and transform the community? That's what all these things about justice are doing. They're transforming business. They're transforming the way people worship together. What are some of the ways we can step into that? Well, I mentioned a little while ago that August 27th, we're not going to worship together here. The day before... We are going to take part in serving and reviving the East Side through Jubilee Reach's Serve Day. I've talked about Jubilee Reach before. They're a nonprofit that works to connect schools and churches, primarily schools in the Bellevue School District, so that they can be a blessing to one another. So last year, a small team, uh, myself and a couple people, we went to Puesta del Sol, which is the Dual Immersion Academy in Bellevue. And we helped teachers get ready for the school year. And I know there's a couple teachers in here, and you're going, can I sign up for that, please? Can I get that in my classroom? It's a huge deal. We got to talk with this teacher who was brand new. It was her first year. She's setting up her classroom for the first time, and she has all these strangers coming in who are just saying, hey, we just want to help you. How can we help you today? That is treating people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. That is an act of justice. If you want to be a part of that, if you want to participate in God's good, just works, join me on the 26th of August, and serving through this incredible opportunity. There's a sign-up sheet out on the welcome table. I could tell you a whole lot more about it. But it's a great thing that we're going to get to do together because we get to let justice roll down like waters when we step into our community that way, when we seek God's revival for our neighbors. Now, the second part of his message in verse 24 is righteousness. We get off the map. We need to seek justice. And righteousness is the other key to that. Right living with God, right standing with God. What does that look like? One of my uh, favorite novels is uh, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. And if you remember that story, there's this criminal, Jean Valjean, and he's released from prison, but he's angry, he's bitter, and he comes into contact with this priest, Bishop Muriel, as he's wandering around the town, and the priest takes him in, says, just, just come in, stay with me for the night. And so Valjean uh, responds to that invitation by coming in, and then he steals the priest's silverware. Steals one of the only valuable things this poor priest has. So he runs away, and then the next day the police capture Valjean. Apparently he's a terrible criminal. They capture him, they bring him back to the priest, and instead of condemning him to a life in prison, instead of sending him back to this terrible place he was so glad to get out of, what does the priest do? He pretends that he's given Valjean the silverware, and then he takes the two silver candlesticks from his mantle and says, oh, you forgot these. Take these as well. Their dialogue goes like this right after that. The police leave, Valjean's off the hook. The bishop drew near to him and said in a low voice, do not forget, never forget, 
that you have promised to use this money to become an honest man. Jean Valjean had no recollection of ever promising anything, so he remained speechless. The bishop emphasized those words when he uttered them. He resumed with solemnity, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it, I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. This is a remarkable moment, incredible story. Valjean's life is forever changed after that. And here's what I want us to think about. That priest knew what to do in a moment of disproportionate influence because he had devoted his life to pursuing righteousness. Being right with God, being able to understand what God desires, what God is about, and it wasn't just for his sake. Religious people are always accused of just being self-righteous and doing stuff for ourselves, and I'm only going to care about the people in my club. Not this guy. The way that he lived his life transformed Valjean's life. And he, in a way, sort of imparted some righteousness to Valjean through this dialogue. Now, did he do this perfectly? Absolutely not. He fudged the truth a little bit when the police came to talk to him, right? He did a little misdirection. He makes the claim at the end of of his statement about having authority over Jean Valjean's soul. I'm not sure I agree with that. But he revealed the heart of God to Jean Valjean. And he changed his life. And that is how God wants his people to live. And that is what Amos was brought to the people of God to tell them. And they kept missing it. And so maybe there are many of us where there are parts of our lives where we need to think about God's call to righteousness and God's call to justice. And maybe you're really discouraged in that. Maybe you're like, man, I've been trying. I'm not seeing anything. I'm trying to live like God wants me to live and there's no fruit and I'm discouraged and I'm frustrated. Go back to one of our big questions. God, what are you teaching me through this? I need to be open to hearing your lessons for me. I need to be open to the fact that I have more to learn. What are you teaching me? I mentioned at the very beginning that there was one person that I know of who saw the financial crisis coming. It's a name that will be familiar to most of us, Mr. Warren Buffett. The Oracle of Omaha, sometime before the crisis, called the credit default swaps and the mortgage products that were being promoted leading up to the crisis financial weapons of mass destruction. He called it. You know why he was able to do that? Why I think he was able to do that? Because he didn't live in New York City. He lives in Omaha. He had distance and objectivity from all that was going on there. So my question for us this morning is, who's your Warren Buffett? Who stands outside of your life that could ask of you, hey, what's going on here? What are you doing? And help you examine things before Jesus Christ without guilt, without shame, that you can ask the question with them, like, what's this suffering about? Like, why is this going on in my life? Is there something I'm supposed to learn? Through Jesus Christ, humanity's disastrous choice in choosing to sin and rebel from God can be torn down and replaced. And Jesus Christ can step into that place that he belongs, the seat of power in our hearts. Not idols, not things that we want to keep chasing. So if you'd like to take a step in that direction, I invite you to join me in prayer as we finish our time together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And I pray that as we continue now in worship through singing, that you would cast out anything from our hearts and minds that wasn't of you, 
may be quickly forgotten, and the things that are of you, may they be raised to new life so that we may consider them in a fresh way. May the adults in this room hear your call to examine their suffering in a godly way. May the kids in this room hear that. May the parents and grandparents in this room hear that and model that for the children that are part of their lives. May those of us who are single find ways to live into this kind of community and do so richly and deeply. That sets a great example for all of us. God, as you move our community forward, do so in your timing to bring glory to yourself and revival to the whole world through your justice and through your righteousness. We pray all these things in the name of Christ.